Hi, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where in the world you're joining us from. My name is Eugenia Prattley. I am one of the members of the HSBC RAW team, and today I am really thrilled to be joined by Paul Laquazi, the co-founder of one of the most innovative brands in the UK at the moment, Small. Paula, welcome. Thank you, Eugenia. Lovely to be here. Thank you very much for having me. We are really delighted to have you. And it's been when we sat down to write a list of the women and the business founders in the UK who we wanted to invite into the HSBC World Program. I'm very pleased to say your name was very much at the top. I'm not embarrassed to say how much we wanted you on this program. So for people who, and I'm sure you all do know Small, but people who may not know a bit about Paula's background. So Paula actually spent many years at, at Unilever. She's also a founding partner of the PEA Consulting. And not only that, but Paula will be here today to really talk about her experiences about accelerating your business. So what it takes to grow your business and take your business to international markets, to go beyond your home market. So when we, when we set out to think about the topics for Raw, we had, we had the funding piece at the very beginning with Julia Elliott Brown. And then we had the session with on connecting and really able to sell your story with Edwina Dunn, the co-founder of the female lead. And now we really wanted to invite Paula on to really talk about the experience of, I guess, some of the challenges, some of the wins and what it really takes as a founder to, to grow your business and to take it beyond and in the initial market and to go from being that sort of founder to the CEO and those changes that, that happen along the way. So before we, we jump into the nitty gritty, Paula, I'd just love to hear a bit from you about your story and where it all began and your journey as a founder, because you've done it a couple of times now. Yeah, the, my story, I guess, I'm a little bit old in the trade. I've been around a while, been around the block a, a little while. I was a chemistry graduate, then joined Unilever on their management scheme, progressed through Unilever to be a marketing director on the UK board, running brands both globally and locally, and then structured change at Unilever. I then was involved in developing brands on a global level. My job title changed. I was VP of a number of global brands, which involved a lot of travel to involve to lots of different markets. At that point, typically, I think for many people as a woman, it was also the time in my career and my life when I was having children. So I had two young children under five and I was traveling an awful lot and I decided this is not for me. I'm not enjoying this. I need to get more balance back. And I then set up my own consultancy, working with lots of big organizations. Unilever continued to be one of my big clients. I worked them right the way through, as well as a number of other big organizations and local businesses. And then more latterly, in the last six years, the development of Small. If you want to kind of have a bit of a background to development of Small. So, because um, I have to, Small is one of those things where... Personally, if you've ever had to clean your house and do your laundry, which I'm guessing is actually 100% of people on the call, it, it is one of those things where you're just like, I hate all this waste. I hate all this single-use plastic. Mm. I hate the fact that this is most likely these chemicals. I don't know if they're any good. They're working, but are they good for me? Mm. These are two different questions. Yeah. So I, your product is genius. Can you tell us more about mm. where this spark of genius came from and your journey there? Okay. Oh, lovely to say that you think it's genius. It was one of those things that people often ask this question, where did it come from? And 
I think most people expect, I had this eureka moment. I was cleaning my clothes, putting washing in, and I had this eureka moment. Sadly, that wasn't the case. I think, like a lot of good ideas, there were a number of factors all coming together that created the idea around small. And I think the principal one really was a personal story in that I was doing my, I was trying to do my bit, which I think everybody around the world now is trying to do their bit, climate change, the social, etc trying to do my bit and managing to do that in food you could buy organic you could buy free range etc managing to do that in personal care but in home care I was really struggling and the reason I was struggling is because the products that existed just didn't work so mm-hmm. when you use them to wash your clothes and your clothes would come out as dirty as they went in and that was really frustrating and it was even more frustrating because they'd cost you an awful lot. So I was having to pay 50 to 100% more to buy environmentally friendly products that cleaned your clothes or cleaned your dishes, but they didn't work as well. So that was one kind of pain point that kind of was a factor in the idea. The second thing is, as I said, I think I graduated as a chemist. So I had a chemical background. I hadn't used it. I'd always been in business since graduating. But I knew enough to know that formulation chemistry had moved on a significant amount over the time the products that have been in the marketplace have been then and knew that it could must be possible to produce better products that were more effective yet environmentally um, improved. So there was that element as well. The third one was I'd lived in Unilever for a long time. It's been my kind of birthplace through my career. And I knew that the home care sector was one of those markets within Unilever that really hadn't had as much attention as many of the other areas. They saw it as a little bit of a cash count dominated by Procter & Gamble and Unilever. And therefore, they weren't hugely incentivized to change. They were really competing against one another, doing the same thing. But actually, as long as they could keep their maintain their share of the market, nothing much had changed. So it was ripe for disruption. It was clear that there were consumer needs out there that needed to be solved. And those big companies just weren't incentivized to do it. And the final thing, and I think the most important thing is, drive to have a purpose-led business that adds something back whilst being commercially sustainable. So that's the kind of holy grail. And I think more and more businesses are going in that way. And I think more and more businesses have to go in that way because of everything that's going on with the environment. And I wanted throughout my career, I've been working on lots and lots of purpose-led businesses for other companies. And I wanted to prove that it was possible to create a business that did some good and added value and worked as a business in itself. So those were the four things that kind of came together in the idea. And at that point, when you get that kind of those things coming together, a lot of gut feel, which I think is really important, that was where it came from. I think what you've hit on, and it's for me, the message is you just trying to do something about it. Hmm. Like that sort of fire that sort of conviction of I can't wait for someone else to do it I need to be the one because you could be waiting forever and that sort of fire I think is so common amongst so many of the female founders the entrepreneurs that we speak to every day is that sense of I can't wait for someone else Mm -hmm. it's an idea that I can't not do so absolutely remarkable and now small you've mentioned it only six years ago yeah, so it's actually four years in the market and 
Two years prior to that was the working on the development of the product. So it's been six years of my life, but four years in the marketplace. That growth is astronomical. Think about four years of here it is, website, go live, everyone come look at what we've got. Mm-hmm. to where we are now so small is international and i think that's a really something i really want to get into in the conversation with you is that role of a leader and encountering perhaps some challenges or maybe that experience of having to sell differently to customers or how do you take a business overseas or how do you find mm-hmm. talent retain culture and things overseas but i want to come back to that journey of small so four years is, is six years is still a really short time to build such a phenomenal mm-hmm. brand has such recognition in the market so when you started your company and i believe you got a co-founder on board and it was more than just you trying to do everything in one go can you talk us through a little bit of that sort of startup phase and then that phase when things started to get really big really quick and how did how did you manage that as the leader as a sort of the co-founder throughout that process so as I said, the kind of creation of the idea, then we then did an awful lot of work in getting the product. So I think anybody listening out there, your product has to be right. Whether it's a service or a product, it has to be absolutely right or it won't work. And I've known enough through my experience and working for other companies that the brands that just had the right intentions that didn't get the product right failed. So really mm-hmm. important to do that. And we took two years in, in doing that work. Excuse me. And once we had the product, we got going, but we had a plan. So we started to look at what we thought we would do in the first year. And we had some seed funds from ourselves and some seed investors. And we thought we had enough for a year to 18. And we put touch paper, launched effectively, turned the website on and started to advertise to try and acquire new customers. And it just went crazy absolutely crazy and it was just nick and i who founded the business just the two of us at that at that stage we were literally doing everything we were answering customer comments we were putting advertising up we were packing packaging we were sending it off to the postman we were doing literally everything and what happened was the brand just took off and we sold our annual volume in the first 12 weeks so it was beyond anything that I had expected or we had expected and we were very quickly running then to catch up running to try and get people to help us so that we could invest more time in doing these things that really were driving going to drive the market and that was a pretty crazy period it was an amazing experience as well at the same time and we did some pretty crazy things over that period to just keep the wheels on but that was a kind of process that we went down in those first early days Uh, We continued to grow, we got significant traction, and within about six months, we could see that we were going to need more money. So our seed fund that we thought would last us for 18 months, because of the speed in which we had gone, we needed more investment. So we went out to the market and looked for that investment. And because we had such incredible data, we were able to get that investment very quickly. In fact, we were like the process. I've never been through that process before. And it was a little bit like anybody who hasn't been through it is a little bit like Dragon's Den, where you're presenting the same presentation to lots and lots of different investment funds. And they're asking you lots of questions and you have to be on your, on your toes to answer them. But very quickly went through that process very quickly in our series. I spoke to a number of people and we had a lot of offers. 
So then we got to this position where we had to either share those investments or choose one. And we decided to go with one investor because we wanted to keep our board small. And it was really important to us to have an investor who we felt we could connect with who had the right level of experience, would really compliment and support us. And that's where we went to with our Series A. Once we had our Series A landed, we then went very quickly into innovating. We launched more products. We launched initially with laundry, so both bio and non-bio. Then we launched dishwasher, then later fabric conditioner and also sprays. So we have these sprays. I don't know how many people know of the products that we have. But I think like got one as well. Yeah. It's beautiful so, yeah. yeah, so you refill these with a tiny little tablet. So the idea being that you only ever have one bottle, so you don't have to continuously buy bottles. And the average UK family buy about 25 bottles a year. So obviously having one for life is wow. far better than that. And they then we send them these tiny little tablets in the post. Sorry, I don't know which way I'm going. Um, yeah. in the, and they refill, so you basically add water to them because not many people know that these products are 85 to 90% water. So, you know, there's no need to ship all that water around the mm. country or in some cases around the world when you can get the water out of your tap and all you need is the actives that, are, that we send in the tablet form. So that's how that works. We launched that product. So we had a number of different products. And then last year, the early part of last year, we got our next round of funding, Series B, in order to expand into international markets. That's such, like your story is just so fast paced is all I can think mm. about. It's just, it's just rapid. I really would like to know from your perspective, how did you manage as a leader of the company? having to invest so much time in fundraising because we all know fundraising is it's almost its own full-time job and in some circumstances it can be a full-time job we manage that with also trying to keep the wheels on with such a rapid demand from your customer base what was that experience like and did you find that was the moment to start bringing in other people or how did you manage that yeah so I think it's important to say that obviously I'm a co-founder, so Nick's my business partner and together we share all of the kind of work involved. So that helps an awful lot. I think if you're on your own, obviously there's a lot of pressure just on you individually. As soon as we had, in fact, you know, within those first 12 weeks of launch when we were running around crazily trying to fulfill all this volume, we were already picking up people to help us and support us. So that was already starting. As soon as we got our first round of funding, we accelerated that pace even further. So we had more people enrolled to do the things that needed to be done, which gave us more room. But as you grow, you need more and more people. So that's mm. been a constant kind of process to the extent that there's a lot of recruitment that's always going on in order to, to get the team that you need in place. I would say that kind of you're looking for changes over time in that who you need in those early days and skills you need in those early days is very different from the skills that you need now and therefore you have to evolve in that process of who you're looking for to support you because as a founder you need to elevate yourself outside of that day-to-day -day stuff and get on with the strategic decisions the leadership the funding the management of investors all of those sorts of things it takes a huge amount of time and going through that process where there's sort of, was there an inner sort of challenge in you as a leader to be able to hand off 
things or be able to split yourself between running those two things? Or did you find that to be really like, no, actually, I know what's going on. I've got a great team. Like, this is all smooth and easy for me. I only asked the question because when I've spoken to other women on the, in the program, I talked about that it's been really hard to go from a founder to a CEO and it's been really hard and I've had to do a lot of almost like soul searching inside to say, let go of the ego and stop trying to control your baby in a way. It's really hard. And, I, and I've been really honest that I don't think that I've cracked that because it's a really difficult thing to do because you love this thing like your child it's not it, i think we'll talk about it as another baby you love this every little bit about it and from the start you have nurtured every tiny element and every element has been really important believe it or not miss and i used to have discussions debates over how straight the label was going on and how people were doing it and whether it was right or not and in those days we were selling 100 packs a day we're now selling 20,000 packs a day but you have to let go because if you do you'll drive yourself insane if you still keep in touch with those details the only thing is that those details really matter so making sure that you can hand off that work to people and they care about it as much as you do is really important. And I think that's the real dilemma that you have as a founder, as you start to manage things off, is being able to make sure that you're handing it off and people accountable and clear about what the expectations are. I think if you don't have that, it's very difficult to do. So that sort of process of handing things over and feeling like, you've got a trust within the, the partnership of your team to deliver everything in the way that you would expect. But you need to be clear about what your expectations are up front because otherwise people just aren't aware. You've touched on something that, so we held our session in the Asia program yesterday and Shraddha Sharma, who's the founder of Your Story, this incredible startup news platform out here in, in Asia, said exactly the same thing. She said, it's all about clarity. You have to break things mm. down and you can't, expect people to receive information the way that you do and you have to make accountability very clear and break accountability yeah. down so people really know what you're expecting is out there and it's in a way that other people can receive it and understand it from their way you're talking a lot about the talent that you've had and the amount of recruitment you've been doing and i imagine you're completely a pro at this now but how what's your sort of advice to people who are going through that process and are starting to hire in the people who are going to help them grow this business and allow them to go from founder to CEO. Do you have any sort of advice for people on that journey? Yeah, so I think this changes over time as well. So when you first, when you're when you're quite small and you're looking to hire and get people to support you, what you need is quite different from what you need at a later stage. So in those early days, people that I would say are broad who have got flexibility, who are willing to be a jack of all trades, jump from one thing to another, because also the depth in which they need to go into when you when you start off is not, it's not all consuming. It's not a full-time job in some areas, bit of that. You need people who've got the energy and flexibility to do that. You need people who've got lots of capacity to learn, get really enthusiastic about all of those different things, got lots of energy. However, then when you get into the next, kind of phase of your business and this happens very quickly is that you need people to go deep so rather broad they need to be deep and they need to have real expert understanding in those specialisms in which you need them to work whether it's tech or growth 
or any of those areas, they need to have real expert understanding. So it's quite a different person that you need. And it's important to note that sometimes the temptation is sometimes to move those people who've been doing the board work into the deep work and they might not be ready for that. Um, so it's really important to kind of understand when your business goes through different phases, you need different people. And when it's a startup, those phases happen very quickly. Um, it's not all my years and years where I recruited hundreds of people. You've got a business that's been around for a long time. The roles don't change that dramatically and therefore the people and the process is much more standardized. But in, in a startup, you have to approach it differently. In those early days, Nick and I did all the recruitment and we made a bit of a mandate, which was we needed to know who was getting on the bus with us. So we had that conversation with them. We knew them as people. We knew them as skills and experience. We knew where their drivers were. We made sure that they were on mission. As you get later in your in recruiting many more people, you need to rely on your leadership team to recruit the right people. And you do it in a much more, I would say, standardized way and that you're getting people to help you recruit and headhunt the very best people in that space. And then you're working through case studies, interviews, et cetera, to get them through. But one thing that I don't think that we've necessarily done as well as we could, but it was something that we were told to do, and I would give that advice to other people, it's hard, is invest time in looking for people who you might not necessarily need right now. So our investors said to us, and I think they were right, but it just was so difficult to do, is they said you should be spending at least between 40 and 60% of your time looking to recruit or looking for people. And as a founder, if you can imagine, you think, God, there's absolutely no way I would, unless I'm doing it in my sleep, there is no way yeah. that I would have the time to do that. But the truth is that those people are so important and you meet them and see them in connections or somebody will talk to you about someone and it's worth keeping those relationships up because when you need someone, you'll know you have this previous conversation or in some cases, you'll bring them into your business because they're really good, even though you don't have a role for them right now. And it's so important because as you grow, having great leaders is really valuable. You can make the difference between success and failure or good and great really is the quality of that leadership team. I think that's really surprising advice. You've got sort of level of dedication almost that you mm. need to prioritize recruitment. If you're talking that percentage of time in your day. And I think even people in a corporate role would find that to be quite a shocking piece of advice, but mm. certainly it's paid off for you. And I think it's something for, it's quite thought provoking for the audience here. Yeah. I think it's hard to do and I wouldn't say that's easy and I wouldn't say I've done it. We didn't do it. We heard it and thought, oh my goodness, we're not doing that. How on earth would we, we find our way to do that? But I think with the benefit of time and hindsight, I can see where that kind of push is really useful because ultimately you're relying on people to run your business. They yeah. have to be really good. You cannot, you get to a point where you cannot do it all yourself. And you have to rely on others to do that. And it's really important that you have selected the right people to do that. Does that change or does that view, does your approach change when you start to then open up to new markets? So I think Small went first, was it to Germany and the Netherlands? Uh, yeah, actually, we tested in the US, in the US in November, 2019. And obviously we went into lockdown in March and 
at that time, if you remember, I'm sure everybody remembers the supplies were so scarce. Yeah. And therefore we were having to make that very difficult decision of do we short in the UK in order to deliver in the US? Because the supplies were all coming from one place. Mm. And, and we decided with everything the way it was to pull back from the US. So we had a very short test period in the US where we learned an awful lot that we did do that 2019, 2020, and then more latterly have gone into the Netherlands and Germany. And we're still in those test phases in the Netherlands and Germany, still learning all the time. But they are quite different markets. So trying to understand, get under the skin of those markets. It's very different to markets like the UK, where I have worked my entire career, lived, born, everything. So I know the UK, and I think your gut instinct, understanding the consumer, particularly in a product-based company, is really important. And and in in a country where you don't even understand the language or the culture, it's really important that you recruit in order to get somebody who can really do that for you. We have another investor, we have Jan Jar, who are the founders of Innocent on our investment yeah. team. And John, I remember him saying to us, it was, a, it's, it was quite a good piece of advice, is he said, it's not about good, because we were talking about which markets might be good for us to go into with small. And he said, success is not necessarily always about which markets are good. It's more necessarily about which market developers are good. And in his experience, that you get the right person in the market, that will drive the success. And it's really important to get that role. I think that person, and in some cases, quite often, founders will go into new markets to develop mm. new markets because it's so important. You need quite an entrepreneurial type of person. You need somebody who's got the energy to keep going when things get tough. You need the, somebody who's got the ability to be a bit of a jack of all trades again, who's got really good gut instinct on the consumer and the marketplace. All of those things are really important. So it's a role that quite often somebody will put someone in who's quite junior in this sometimes, and they just don't have the experience to be able to make that work. It's really important to get the right person. It needs to be a mini you in that market to make that work. And what about, I guess, you've, you talked a lot about, and I know more the leadership team. How do you then think about, I guess, the broader workforce? And how do you make sure that they're all aligned with where you're going with Small? And particularly for a very much a purpose-led business and mm. for a business that is growing so rapidly, it is a lot of change for, for people to go through. What's that journey been like for you? So I think it's really, it's, you know, I've got a lot of experience in my career of how you kind of create, this is really about sort of culture, I think, mm. in an organisation and clarity of vision and mission. There are obvious classic ways of getting people together, getting teams together, getting a whole workforces together to talk about these things. And of course, all of that happens. But I think it's the, the drivers that are the kind of nuance of that are the things that happen in between. And if you're in a if you're in a distributed organization, which we are, which means that we don't have an office. And I think more obviously since COVID, lots of people are working remotely, it becomes harder and harder to develop a culture because that kind of feeling that you get when you're all around one another and you're speaking to one another about all sorts of things, you just get a it's almost by osmosis. It travels via osmosis. When you're not in a, in a location, you have to work harder at doing that. And I think it's really important that you're really open. I think it's really important that when you recruit, you're very clear about what your mission is 
And you also dig quite deep in that interview process and understanding when people are motivated by the mission, if they really truly understand it, because it's it's understanding that some of the sacrifices that you might have to make are at the expense of some elements in order to still keep driving that that mission. And it's important that people kind of recognize that. But we do all of the, we have lots and lots of one-to-ones with our people in the team. We constantly talk about the mission, the team get together. But other things that that you can do, which we're looking to do now is things like surveys, making Mm -hmm. sure that people are up to date, I have that good level of understanding because as you get bigger, it's much harder to really get a feel, particularly if you're not physically in the same space, to get a feel of whether all of that has been communicated. So kind of anonymous surveys, all those sorts of things are really good ways of understanding whether you've got that or whether you need to do more work in that space. Do you, like, so, so I've got a couple more questions, then um, unfortunately we're nearly out of time. I think you and I could probably chat for endless <laughs> and so, so thinking back to the beginning six mm-hmm. years ago sitting down there with that burning desire to i've got to do something now where we are and multiple markets this extraordinary growth has the vision for small changed you've got investors you've got other opinions now mm-hmm. that you've got you've got real market feedback for customers mm-hmm. is this what you thought small would be or has actually the mission is the same but the outcomes are different so I think when we start, you've got to remember, it's been working in an organization like Unilever. Nick has also worked at Unilever. So you're going up against these big, kind of huge multinational companies. And the expectation was, can we really succeed against these guys? Because they're enormous and the resources, people power and financial power that they have. So there was an expectation that we can do this and we can definitely create a good business in the UK. It was really closed off on, on in terms of international. It was much more about we believe we can make a really great business in the UK. Obviously, as things grew very quickly, you start to realise actually this there's a real need here, and we believe this need is not only relevant to people in the UK and Britain, it's relevant all over the world, particularly as people want to do the right thing and you can see as global surveys all over the world 90 odd percent people want to do their bit and this was giving them a way to do their bit without too many sacrifices actually it was doing things they always did but they felt better about them they were saving chemicals they were saving plastic and they were washing their clothes and they were doing it at a price that made sense so we could do that in other markets and then when you get investment on board obviously their experience and understanding gave us more confidence that actually we could go out into other markets. So that had been a kind of change and adaptation from where we were right in the early days. The other thing has been that we've changed, and that's more recently, um, and many people probably on the call who will be dealing with this, is we were using social channels and digital channels to acquire our customers. And obviously over the last year, things have changed quite dramatically with privacy uh, uh, settings, on things like Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, which means that the cost of acquiring customers through digital only channels has gone up significantly. So that meant that in order to do this in a way that is sustainable from the business point of view, we need to look to other channels. And we had never ever thought of doing anything outside of direct to consumer. But what 
that actually opened up as the opportunity of going into retail. And we'd had a number of retailers approach us in the past, say, we'd love to stop you. And we'd always said no. But more recently, because of our limitations of getting out to more customers through just digital only, is we've gone into a retail test. So we're now in saying on an exclusive basis, testing that to see how that works, to see if we can drive our awareness to people who are not as familiar with some of the digital channels or don't use those digital channels. In addition to that, consumers have really helped us because some consumers have said to us, I really love you. I love the brand, love the product, but I just don't want the subscription. I've got an aversion to subscriptions. I can't manage them. I have different kind of needs at different times in my life. I would love to have the product just buy on a one-off mm -hmm. basis in a store. And again, that's the other kind of added bit of information that we've had said, okay, then being in a retail environment is good for us because it will enable all those consumers who don't want to buy us on a subscription directly to, to buy in store. And the same for this consumer base seems like a good fit. That's where we've gone to the two of the things that are different from how we set, originally set out. Imagine this is a huge billion dollar market. So to go in and to have the success that we've seen in the marketplace is kind of beyond our wildest dreams in the early days. So I guess it's not surprising that we have adapted as we've gone. That's absolutely brilliant. And it's just, it just, I can't say it enough. I just think it's just absolutely genius. And I think it's great that it's on shelves. People, people can just go and test it. You can just mm. buy one pack and just say, do I like this? Actually, I do. Yeah. So we're getting close to the end now. And I've got two questions left for you. One is actually from Edwina Dunn, the host of our previous session on connecting. And she is the founder of the female lead. She also was the co-founder of Dunn Humbly, which went on to become the Tesco club card mm -hmm. business. So Edwina as female lead, she's incredibly passionate as you are about gender equality, particularly seeing more women having a seat at the table, if not chairing the meetings at the table mm -hmm. in business. So Edwina has a question for you. She wants to know your views on how do we bring more men into the conversation around supporting female founders and their businesses? So I think that there has to be more education that goes on both between women and men actually so I, I hate it to be a kind of man thing and women are great and men aren't because it's really not I genuinely my whole experience my entire career I believe that men have real strengths women have real strengths and in combination that's when you get the best result and I think as women we know pretty well what men's strengths are because we've been surrounded by it for quite a long time and trying to almost emulate it because we can't find a way around but I think men understanding what women bring to the table I think is still missing so I think really understanding and appreciating that what we bring is different but is really valuable and I think there's a huge amount that is missing. I've seen it a lot in my career today. I'm really familiar with sitting in meetings or round boardroom tables where I am the only woman. And I've never really thought about it significantly because it's just been the way it is. However, as I've got older, I've realized that the only way that I can get heard is by emulating what they're being, behaving like they are. And I don't want to be like that. I want to bring my female skills because I think female, us as women, bring an awful lot to the table. 
and we've got to enable men to understand the importance of those skills. I think there is another sort of killer of women in the, around the boardroom, and that is unconscious bias. So there's a huge amount of unconscious bias. I see it all the time. I see mm-hmm. and hear, I mean, very innocently, there's never any kind of malice intended, but those comments landing to the women can have quite dramatic consequences that they just kind of go, do you know what? I'm not up for this. Or ultimately, because of that unconscious bias, they're not allowed around the boardroom table. So I think yeah. there's definitely got to be more education around unconscious bias more education around skills that are involved i think mentoring is a brilliant thing to male leaders to mentor or vice versa actually women and get a real genuine insight into what it's like to be in a woman's shoes and how their skills are different and i've seen that in different organizations and i think it does work to think yeah men behave differently when they're one-on-one and they really focus on listening but we've also got to recognize that there are differences there's the one obvious massive difference is and this affects us badly I think is confidence we don't have for whatever reason we don't have the same obvious level of confidence that men do and I think it's because maybe we've had to endure what we have we feel like we're running to catch up the data shows this as well and I think this affects particularly funding I've seen this in funding in that men have so much confidence that and bravado that they put in lots of really unrealistic numbers into investment rounds and what happens with those vcs or funders is they naturally take it down because they know there's a lot in there however women are much more realistic about their expectations and their forecasts and therefore if their numbers are taken down they're taken down much more significantly than they need to be because yeah. I think us as women, we like to deliver. So we will give ourselves a stretching target that we know that we'll be able to deliver against it. Whereas men will give themselves an unrealistic target and know that they won't be able to deliver against it and feel fine about that. But for us women, I think it's much harder to live like that. We'd much rather give ourselves a stretch and deliver or over-deliver against it. I think Absolutely. The, other, the other thing is about, we. it's again, it's documented that women deliver better revenues women deliver better return on investment why on earth is that not talked about why on earth are we not shouting that from the rooftops because it is not understood and it's definitely true the data backs up my experience backs it up it's just the way that we are we collaborate a lot more in the way that we work things through so we work with others to collaborate whereas men tend to work more independently come up with an answer and then they'll present it and at that point if there's any collaboration sometimes it's seen as a failure for a man to have to change their view for women they come in at an open level collaborate get to a consensus with a view to not making any mistakes i want everybody's views i want all the data so it's very different ways of working and i think we all need to understand there's all strengths and in each of those ways of working and together that's where you get to the best results. I think it's really education, helping people understand. And there's so much data to back it up, which I think will help, particularly men, because I think they love data. So I think seeing that the truth, this is how it works. And I think they they want the best results. Everybody wants the best results. You don't really mind where it comes from. And it is this unconscious bias that sometimes affects 
that ability to listen to things in the same way as they would do that come from a man. Love it. Brilliant answer. Absolutely love it. So thank you for that. The final question is one that we ask all of our masterclass hosts across all of our programs. And the question is, what do you know now that you wish you knew then? Oh. And it could be about small, it could be about life in general. It's entirely That's a big question. I think, I think what I wish I would have known is the amount of constant energy that is required to be a founder of a business endurance that you need and whilst it's said a lot this kind of saying of it's a marathon not a sprint i think it's very difficult not to sprint when you're working incredibly hard on things and i don't know i think most people are the same spoken to lots of founders you give it your all you are thinking about it 24 7 every moment of every day i think about it when i'm sleeping i dream about it i wake up in the night thinking about it constantly in your mind and i think pacing yourself is really important because certainly my experience is you can hit some points in your life where you just find it just too much unless yeah. you pace yourself so i think that's the one thing that i think the understanding that whilst I'd heard that phrase I didn't deeply understand it in the way that I understand now and the importance of making sure you pace yourself for what is an incredibly long journey and it is incredibly hard brilliant thank you so much Paula this is this has been absolutely fascinating as I knew it would be and I just want to say a huge thank you to, to the audience for joining us today this is the final session of our HSBC raw masterclasses for with the UK, the Channel Islands, Isle of Man and Egypt. It's been an absolute joy to, to have everyone join us and we are so grateful. So again, just a huge thank you from me today, Paula. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you, Gina. I've really enjoyed it. Absolute pleasure.